welcome to Surviving Society Presents The Global Power of the British Monarchy. In these episodes, we'll be looking to challenge existing conversations about the British monarchy. Often in popular discourse, the monarchy is taken for granted as part of British culture. With expert guests, the podcast tells a story of the other side of monarchy, from its links to empire and colonialism, to issues of wealth accumulation and nationalism. The series sets out to disrupt common sense understandings and undertake a critical analysis of the firm and its various intersections with inequality. This series has been executively produced by Laura Clancy. In this episode, we're discussing monarchy and its connections to colonialism and imperialism. The monarchy has had historical ties to systems of colonial domination and the North Atlantic slave trade, and as we'll explore, in many ways, still benefits from a lot of these ties. To discuss this, I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Brooke Newman from Virginia Commonwealth University. Thanks for having me. I'm a professor of British history, and I primarily research and teach on the Atlantic world and the history of slavery. And I'm currently writing a book right now on the links between the British monarchy and slavery from the reign of Queen Elizabeth I through Victoria and on into the present day. I'm so excited about your book. (laughs) I cannot wait to read it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about writing it? What have you found? What's been particularly interesting? Well, what's interesting about this is that there are a number of different books that dabble in discussing the relationship between the royal family and the monarchy and slavery. But I was shocked that there wasn't one book that looks at the evolution of the royal family's relationship to colonialism, the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, the defense of slavery, and then eventually the abolition movement. And so I set out to essentially write the book that I wanted to read This is my second book, and so I think that I'm in a good position to do this work, having written a book first about colonization of Jamaica and the rise of slave society in Jamaica. It's a book I'm writing for a wider audience as well as scholars, but I think it's really significant to explain the British Crown's connections to both the rise and the fall of African enslavement in the Americas. And many of the sources that I'm using are hidden in plain sight to some extent, in the sense that we know that the royal family was instrumental in the development of the transatlantic slave trade through the creation of the Royal African Company during the Stuart era in the 17th century. But otherwise, that's really all we hear about the monarchs typically, that the Stuarts helped to set up the first major slave trading company and then after that don't really play a significant role at all and i what i wanted to do in this book is explain how not only the monarchs themselves but also prominent members of the royal family were investing in expanding and defending the transatlantic slave trade and african bondage for multiple centuries and that really they don't pivot away from slavery to embrace abolition and anti-slavery until the 19th century but it's really the celebration of British anti-slavery that's been a dominant narrative uh, nationally, but also in terms of the royal family for over 200 years now. I mean, I was also, I remember when I started writing my PhD and then my book, and I remember searching and searching and searching, thinking this book must exist, right? There must be right. a history of like colonialism, the monarchy. So, and then when you read like how close the ties were, it's not just like tangential, like they were absolutely central to lots of these systems. I just, I've, I find it incredible that kind of no one's written this before. Do you have a sense of why that is? I think because we tend to see slavery as something that was very much 
um, state-sponsored only in the sense that they are granting monopoly charters and they might be you know, holding stock, but that they're not playing a central role, that it's really these companies, these joint stock companies, the precursors to the modern corporation, you know, they're the ones that are primarily investing in and expanding the slave trade. And they're the ones who are providing the labor force, which the colonies are desperate to have. But what I think that people tend to overlook is the not only the significance of the royal family, particularly in the, the pre-glorious revolution era, where they are trying to build an empire that is going to compete with the Iberian powers. It's going to be a, an English empire, a Protestant empire, but also they're going to, to make money off of this empire. They're going to essentially be able to have some ability to act outside of parliament by generating revenue through things like import taxes that parliament gives to the stewards that they can use to you know, fund their activities, their kind of ideal authoritarian type of government, an absolutist government that they're trying to form in the 17th century. And then after that, in the 18th century, there are all these other companies involved. But I think the issue with the royal family is that they, from, you know, from Elizabeth I, they see the financial benefit of investing in the slave trade. They also see it as a way to be competitive on uh, on a global scale to some extent, and the way to build an empire. And they're doing this prior to the Glorious Revolution in a more active and obvious way, but they're continuing to do it behind the scenes in the 18th century too. And because the royal family is invested in slave trade, because their logo, their brand is wrapped up in the slave trade and in the use of coerced labor, it is not only seen as you know, good investment and a safe investment. It's their royal stamp of approval. You know, the slave trade was closely identified with the royal cause in the 17th century. And I think that's something that we tend to forget. And it's definitely something that the royal family wants us to forget now. There's a legitimatory function of the monarchy for me in the kind of, you know, what they're seen to be associated with, what they're seen to do, you know, gathers that kind of legitimacy from that process. Um, and I think that that kind of symbolic, you know, I'm thinking particularly of, I was, you know, when I was speaking, I was thinking of like Queen Victoria, for instance, and kind of, you know, being talked about as the grandmother of, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the empire on which the sun never sets and, you know, the grandmother of, of everything and how and how that kind of that, that symbolic function for lots of those monarchs was, was really important to reproducing that entire system, really, of kind of colonialism and slavery and all of those things. Absolutely. And even in the 18th century. So one of the one of the things I'm writing about in my book and that I've only seen mentioned in in a few places is that when Queen Anne ends up getting the Asiento contract in order to deliver, it's a 30-year agreement to deliver 4,800 captive Africans to Spanish America every year. This was a sought-after contract that the British government and the Crown really wanted to help service debts the national debt. And then the contract is passed to the South Sea Company. But from the very beginning, Anne held a quarter interest in the Asiento profits. And not only would she have made, and the crown itself, made a substantial amount of money directly off of the slave trade to Spanish America, later Parliament 
And the head of the South Sea Company, they ask her essentially to waive her rights to this interest because they this is such a financial burden for the company to get this slave trade up and running. And she agrees to do this. And so she, even though she allows them to take some of the, that profit um, themselves, she's doing it in service of the company in service of the slave trade and ultimately helping to pay the national debt. So using the slave trade to benefit her kingdom. And I think that's an important thing to consider as well. And she agreed to lend them two stocked ships before her death. And then George I and George II, they then come along after her death. They are both serving as governors of the South Sea Company. I mean, this is an honorary role, but there, there's a lot of correspondence that survives where they are saying, you know, we will try to look after your interests. They own stock in the South Sea Company. They're trying to promote the interests of the company. They know what they've invested in. They know how they're making money. And so do others. And I think this is partially what helps to lead to uh, the South Sea bubble, where it all collapses, is that people are rushing to invest in a company that they think is a good investment um, and that is a smart financial choice. And the royal family's brand then and now is really important for companies and generates a lot of revenue and a lot of support from the public as people start to try to invest in companies that they see as having the royal stamp of approval. Yeah, and we see that nowadays with like royal warrant, uh, which they give to particular companies that have uh, done particular work for them. So still that kind of that symbolic function, I guess, in those in those different places. I think I think what's really interesting, and again, this is kind of something that I talk about and I think it's worth us discussing I think that this link between monarchy and kind of corporations and monarchy and business there's an assumption I think I think it's starting to change actually but I think over the last few years there's been an assumption that that monarchy is this like very traditional very backwards looking institution that doesn't Mm. really fit in with the modern world that isn't you know doesn't really do whatever version of capitalism we're in now right is it neoliberalism whatever it is like that can't fit in with that but actually you know when you look back and that history you've just described says it perfectly actually what they've been very good at is adapting and adapting the institution to that particular period of capitalism in order to ensure that they continue being productive right and they continue with their wealth and therefore the institution gets reproduced as well Um, and I think that comes through really powerfully when we think about you know, those connections to the kind of slave trade businesses and then thinking about that over the years as well. Absolutely. I mean, they are a billion dollar corporation, basically. They have so much money. It's unbelievable. And it's distributed in so many different ways in land, in stock, in palaces, in jewels. There's just, it's kind of insane to think about how much wealth the British royal family has and how we don't tend to talk about it. And even when you think about Elizabeth II, when she died, one of the main things that I heard from everyone about her was that she lived her, a life of service. <laughs> she devoted her life to service. And that is exactly what Charles said in his first speech. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. Alongside the personal grief that all my family are feeling, we also share with so many of you in the United Kingdom, in all the countries where the Queen was head of state, in the Commonwealth, 
and across the world a deep sense of gratitude for the more than 70 years in which my mother as queen served the people of so many nations. But then essentially let's not acknowledge the centuries of exploitative practices that we have benefited from, where all this wealth came from. Because if they package themselves as people who are simply doing their duty and serving the people, it then becomes almost as if they're doing everyone a favor uh, and that that's why they should be supported and loved, not that they are actually, you know, incredibly wealthy and actually very influential despite having primarily, you know, ceremonial power. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think I think that's the key kind of change, I guess, maybe from, you know, the period you were previously talking about and, and now that kind of, I want to call it an ideological function, I guess, in terms of how they're presenting themselves and kind of what they need to say <laughs> in order to kind of mask that history. So, you know, at one point having kind of an absolute monarchy, in, you know, in charge of all these things was, was, was fine. And now, of course, we see that's completely shifted. Those discourses of duty, hard work and, and like positioning it as a job as well. Like I think they all, Prince Harry did this in particular when he was in the monarchy, but lots of them do it, like positioning it as work, right? So then they appear productive, they appear mm-hmm. kind of part of a labour force, and they appear as though, again, it's distancing themselves from that kind of landed gentry, um, you know, surviving on wealth kind of idea into that kind of, it's almost like they position themselves as meritocratic in a really weird way. Right, even though this is a hereditary yeah. institution. Yeah. And, and the only reason why they're still in the position that they're in is about, you know, claims to bloodlines, having some kind of superior bloodline to being set apart and distinct from not only their subjects, but the rest of humanity. And and that I think is so, such an anachronistic way of thinking in the 21st century. But I've had people ask me before, inclu- including journalists, they've said things like, well, why is it that you know, we know quite a bit about the monarchy. We know what they've done. We've even know about various, you know, negative scandals they've been involved in. And yet for some reason, there's still an affinity for them. There's still mm. a sense that they're part of our, our heritage and our tradition. And not only do the British want to maintain the monarchy, and there's no sense that there's like a very strong Republican movement within Britain, but also kind of globally, people seem to look to the British royal family as something to revere at the same time that it's kind of fun and titillating. And I think Americans see the royal family as, you know, we live vicariously to some extent through the royals. We have our celebrities, but they come and go. They have their like five seconds of fame, but the royals seem to live on despite what they do. There's that sense of continuity. And I think maybe in a a rapidly changing world where people feel like the ground is shifting, there's something about this thousand year old institution that people want to hang on to. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, from a British perspective, I think there is something around kind of national identity and heritage and those kind of deeper connections I suppose but there's also something around for me what's key is is the presentation of individuals and how that becomes kind of um, part of celebrity culture or part of gossip or and particularly you can see this with the queen and how kind of there's so much kind of feeling attached to her um, and how that then masks the operations of the institution I mean one thing Mm, I wanted mm -hmm. to one thing I wanted to ask you about was you know in the UK in particular we've seen in recent years quite a lot of reckoning 
with histories of colonialism. So I'm thinking of like the National Trust, for example, and country houses. And we haven't really seen that same push, I guess, towards the monarchy. And I wonder, for me, part of the explanation of that is that they're not thought of in that bracket. They're thought of as individuals and as a family and as you know, there's young children and they do these spectacular events and there's, there's a very different kind of feeling around them, I think, than some of those institutions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what you argue in your book so well <laughs> about you. how they have essentially the backstage, uh, what they want people to see, the, presenting themselves as a family. Because I think if you present yourself as a family, then there is an emotional connection to your subjects. Uh, your subjects, but then also the world. Whereas if if the focus is more on the institution itself, that's when we can start getting into more of the specifics of, you know, where did the wealth of this institution come from? How is it maintained? What influence is this institution exerting behind the scenes? What relationship does the institution and its representatives have with the media? Um, and how is that crafting their image and helping to maintain the image of them as this family? I mean, especially when you think about Will and Kate, they are always represented in this light of, you know, they've got these kids and they're doing their duty and they're going to all these events and they're working really hard. And I've seen that even since the Queen died, there's been a number of stories about how, you know, they've now been pushed even more out into the limelight and they're having to, you know, to, to work harder than they've ever worked before to hold this this institution and family together. Whereas like Harry and Meghan have, you know, they have taken off and they're the ones who are, are kind of chipping away at the institution and destroying the family and making things toxic. And that's the language that's been used to describe this group. Yeah, totally. I'd be really interested to hear what you think, actually, as someone who kind of does media around this. Do you think it's changing in terms of people asking questions around money? So when the Queen died, I had a really, I'm sure you did as well, like a crazy week afterwards with particularly international media. It was a lot of American mm-hmm. media. And all they wanted to ask me was around what, what's Charles inheriting? You know, what's the institution worth? What is What kind of loopholes yes. are getting around for tax? That's all they wanted to know, which I was like really pleasantly surprised about because I never get asked about that. But um, I, I just, do you, I mean, do you, th- do you feel that's a signal that things are shifting or was that a particular flash moment? Or what's your sense of that? I think it's a bit of both because things have shifted dramatically since the 2020 Black Lives Matter movement. I think that was a pivotal moment where people are asking for the first time, not just about the legacies of slavery in the United States and systemic racism and what we are living with now, Um, thinking about it more in terms of a global understanding of systems of repression and subjugation and racism and what are the legacies that have been inherited from the past. And because there have been a number of projects in the UK where various institutions have been examining their links to slavery, uh, there's a natural curiosity about, well, what are the links between the monarchy and slavery? What are the links between you know, the royal family now and the wealth they've inherited um, and things that have happened in the past that, you know, are unsavory, that we don't want to talk about, that they don't want to draw attention to or apologize for. So I do think there has been a, a definite shift in the rhetoric around the royal family and even just the questions that people are asking about the royal family. But I also think we should give credit to former Commonwealth realms like Barbados yeah. for... Mm-hmm 
making, uh, you know, statements and saying essentially it's time to move on from the colonial past. Uh, we're ready to sever ties. The idea, this idea of severing ties keeps coming up. And I've been asked that by a number of different journalists, essentially, why now? Why are they severing ties now? Why not before? At midnight, 55 years after Barbados gained independence, the centuries-old ties with British monarchy were cut and a president replaced the queen. From the colonial past to the independent nation to the future of the new republic, I have become president, the first president of the Republic of Barbados, which I have sworn to serve faithfully. We are Barbadians. We, the people, must give Republic Barbados its spirit and its substance. We, the people, are Barbados. One of the things that I think is really revealing is the number of statements of regret that Charles III has now made, you know, as Prince Charles, and then also William. And the statements that they're making are hollow mm. in so many ways. And the more statements of regret that they make, I think the more entrenched their uh, position becomes that they are not going to fully acknowledge and admit culpability for their own ties within the family with to their own wealth and how it's been accumulated. And they're not going to apologize and seek to make any kind of amends. Uh, they're not going to reach out to CARICOM, for example, and actually uh, try to engage in a good faith conversation about reparations that could be as simple as, you know, setting up a scholarship fund for students in the Caribbean to be able to study in the UK. I mean, something very strategic and pragmatic like that, the royal family could do. But they haven't done that because if they instead put their emphasis on um, like the Earthshot program or, you know, something at least in the past on climate change, they can look to that. It's positive. It's charitable. It doesn't connect them necessarily to any wrongdoing in a way that, you know, establishing a fund for the modern day descendants of enslaved people that they benefited from financially um, would raise all kinds of new questions and force them to have uh, public conversations about those ties that they would much rather just paper over mm. and, and move forward and not discuss. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think what really got me is like how woefully unprepared they were to kind of have questions asked. So I'm thinking particularly of was it Edward who went um, somewhere and was that directly asked the question about reparations and literally just laughed. And the fact that, you know, the institution hadn't thought that you know, okay, there's these reckonings going on elsewhere that we had a key role to play in this history. People are going to ask questions. What's our response? Like they hadn't, didn't seem to have ever got even to that point. And kind of what that symbolizes around their like self-assuredness almost and kind of yes. belief in their own institution that they're so special, that they're so separate from all these things. They don't need to be involved in those conversations. And I feel like if, if you know, if this conversation is going to get bigger, which I, I kind of feel like it might actually, I, I can kind of feel the tide turning. They need to prepare better statements because the fact that they can't even engage to have any sort of conversation, it's, it's pretty incredible in 2022 that they were at that point. But then when you think about, yeah, I agree with you, but when you think about the royal tour last spring mm. and how 
just how shockingly bad it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, Will and Kate were, were not prepared. Everything they did, all of the missteps that they took, the, the way they essentially embraced a, an imperialist past as though that was something that would be, should be celebrated mm. was just so tone deaf. And I, and my, the first thing I thought when I was you know hearing about everything going on during the Royal tour was who is advising them? Because you always hear about Buckingham Palace is doing X. And I know it's this massive team of people and they're advising them and they're telling them what to say or what to not to say. But those people clearly are not talking to historians. I think, most of the team and the people surrounding the British monarchy are telling them what they want to hear. And then even the people typically who write about the royal family, who follow the royal family, the royal reporters, they're always trying to get in the good graces of the royals that they're going to be invited to ribbon cutting events. Uh, whereas someone like you or me, we don't we don't care what the royal th family thinks about us. You know, we don't need <laughs> them to invite us to tea. And so we're the ones to some extent saying why are we not questioning this policy? Why are they not prepared? Why, you know, somebody asked me once, you know, what would you say to Charles if he reached out to you for advice? I said, I laughed. I said, he would never reach out to me for advice. I'm not <laughs> going to tell him what he wants to hear. And so I think until the royal family starts to surround themselves with some with some counselors, thinking like so Henry VIII right now, but like counselors that are critical that tell them things that they may not want to hear, they're never going to change. I mean, I do think that to some extent they have to, as you said, because there, the, there is a, certainly a pivot going on to where they have to address some of these issues. But I, the one thing I noticed with Charles, and this is just in the last month or so, is that he was asked about more of the realms leaving the Commonwealth, um, Australia, potentially Canada, New Zealand. And he's and he has said, well, you know, that's fine. That That's on them. They can do what they want. We'll support them. And I think in, it's a clever move on his part because he's acknowledging that it's their choice and he's going to support that. And he doesn't have to apologize for anything. He can just sort of say, well, good luck to you. It's been a great relationship. I don't need to, to really do anything. I don't have to say sorry. Uh, you can just move forward and, and, you know, we'll just kind of sweep this tragic past under the rug and not talk about it. Totally. I, th I think that question around the institutions that protect the monarchy is really interesting. I'm really glad you brought that up. And it's something that I'm kind of becoming more and more interested in. So I've done um, interviews with royal correspondents and kind of spoken to them about, well, how do you get royal news? You know, how is that sourced? How is it addressed? Um, and kind of the overwhelming feeling, it was very hard to get access to royal correspondents, by the way, um, which, is, which is one conversation, right, around how we can get access to those things. But kind of the overwhelming feeling was, if you say something that's too negative, will you kind of have a door shut in your face later on and you can't get the access that you need? So I think there's, that those kind of unwritten rules around how you report on monarchy are absolutely key to what we see and what we don't see in the media. And is also key to this issue specifically around kind of these histories and these presents um, of, of imperialism and colonialism, why we don't see those being addressed um, or being spoken about because of kind of that layer of protection that circles the institution. Definitely. And and that you, you brought up a point that made me think a bit about the archive itself. The Royal Archives are in Windsor Castle have a very patchwork collection of materials. And for some monarchs, there's more than others, but people are always shocked when 
they ask me things like, well, where are the, I want to see the receipts. I want to see, you know, (laughs) so-and-so George the first, he had, you know, X amount of stock. He invested it this way. He spent it on this painting. It's in this palace. And I said, you know, they don't necessarily keep track of those things. I mean, you're lucky if you do find things like that. And I think for, for George the fourth, when he was Prince of Wales, he was in massive, unprecedented, like obscene levels of debt. So in the Royal Archives, they do actually have a number of receipts or essentially unpaid bills, which are pretty fascinating um, for him. But a lot of the other monarchs, those materials just don't exist. And then in addition, they've curated, heavily curated the the monarch's um, archive. So we know, for example, that Victoria's, one of Victoria's daughters, edited her diary, that they burned her letters. William IV actually um, stipulated that he wanted most of his papers and correspondence to be destroyed when he died. And it was, most of it was destroyed. So a lot of what we want to know about the royal family, we will never know because they have strategically manipulated the archive. And as a historian, I find that incredibly frustrating. Um, But then the fact that the modern Windsors have really doubled down on this, they don't allow historians access to anything really recent. I mean, the one reason why I was able to work on the royal family in the archives at Windsor Castle is because I was looking at, you know, the the distant past, (laughs) which they're more comfortable with. Um, they, but they, in terms of the, the current family now, they don't really want us to know. Maybe you know, like you know, various people's things being sealed for a very long time. The generations after us may be able to find out what they were up to, but not you know, current historians, current scholars, current people who want to know what has the royal family been doing. You know, what are they saying behind the scenes? Who are they meeting with? They have really tried to keep that from the public and from scholars who want to study them. It's, it's quite clever how they do it. So it's not only that they keep certain things hidden and the fact that they... So the example that always comes to me is there was a, um, a documentary in the 1960s called Royal Family, which was like a fly-on-the-wall documentary. Um, and they've redacted the entire documentary and you can't get it anywhere. And, like, imagine, like, where we are now with, the, you know, the internet and so on, as if you can redact that kind of footage is, is quite exactly. incredible. But also in terms of how they talk about reports. So, like, when they, you know, they do these annual reports about finances. And actually the way they describe certain things is, is quite in quite a roundabout way. Um, or they kind of say one thing on one page, on the front page, and then six pages later they'll say something else that actually completely changes that. And then when you kind of dig around a bit, you're like, okay, well, actually, all you're saying is two plus two is four, right? isn't it? Like, that's what you're saying. But they, <laughs> but they don't ever say that, right? They'll talk around it for so... I just find it incredible how difficult they make finding very quite basic information, if it's even available at all. Yes, they make things difficult to find. And then they also, as you were saying, they make things convoluted. So I've seen this a lot recently. There, There's been this push from the right essentially to say you know we're not talking enough about britain's commitment to abolition or we're not talking enough about the positive aspects of the royal family or or we're not celebrating british anti-slavery enough and and i think that's just a load of crap um <laughs> because that's been the dominant narrative for centuries now i mean you have to actually dig deeper to find evidence of what people were actually involved in, you know, what people actually knew, what the royal family knew about atrocities being committed throughout the empire or something. And and I, I think there's a sense that if you talk about 
a thousand-year-old institution in a critical way. You, I mean, you were mentioning this earlier about national identity, but you are chipping away at national identity. And people find that very threatening. And I, I think particularly now uh, in the post-Brexit era, there seems to be you know, a panicking about you know, who the British people are, uh, the future of Britain and the world, what's going to happen to, you know, one of the world's formerly great empires. Um, and in the United States, we've had similar concerns about the founding fathers. Um, I think the difference, though, is that the founding fathers have been under the microscope now for about a couple, a couple of decades. And there's been a real shift in public understanding of their role in slavery in, in a way that's that I've noticed in my lifetime. Whereas the British monarchy, there has not been that same sort of sea change in the way people talk about them or think about them. Um, and, and there's these as you flash moments where people will say, um, well, what about this or what about that? But generally, most of that is is kind of on the side. It's not something that's the, the dominant narrative about the royal family. And I'm I'm really curious to hear your perspective on why you think it is that you know this this stuff is not taught as widely in the UK. Um, even Prince when he was Prince Prince Charles gave a speech saying that he thinks the history of slavery should be taught in the, to the same extent as the Holocaust um, in in Britain. And I thought that was interesting because I I've been asked also by reporters, well, how is it taught? You know, how are you know people in let's say you know years one through eight how are they learning about the history of slavery do they know anything about the world's family's involvement in slavery and from as far as i know I, it's not taught as, to the extent that it could be no it's certainly not taught as a standard thing i know of some cases that, that do teach but i don't remember ever learning about it what i remember learning about at school is um henry the wives <laughs> and um, that kind of Tudor history. And again, you know, I find that fascinating in terms of how that creates certain myths around monarchy and certain, makes it almost like a folk tale. But with Henry VIII, what you're really talking about is like violence against women. That's what it boils down mm-hmm. to, kind of how that's narrated. There's a lot going on, I think, in terms of, and I think you're right, I think in Britain, what I find incredible when I kind of talk to people from other countries who look at monarchy, a lot of this is like very obvious to them. And I think it's it's not obvious in quite the same way in Britain, I think. Like 10 years ago, to say you were a Republican was like quite taboo, actually. Um, and I think it still is to a certain extent, although I do think that's starting to change. And what I think will be really interesting, I find the timing of the Queen's death very interesting. In terms of, like you said, we've kind of come out of Brexit, Britain's changing position in the world. There's all that discussion around global Britain and for a moment that was attached to the Commonwealth, although that seems to have disappeared. So you've kind of got that going on. You've got the various crises within the royal family, I think. So Harry and Meghan, for instance, which for me was another flashpoint where these conversations Mm. around race and all of this came up. Uh, You've got Prince Andrew. You've got a king in charge who is not that popular, really, and certainly doesn't hold the same sway as the Queen did. You've got uh, cost of living crises and kind of all of the very far right politics that we've got going on in the UK. So for the Queen to die at this this moment, I think it's really quite interesting in terms of what that might fracture and if that will fracture anything. I'm not sure it will, but I think it's you know I think it's particularly interesting that these kind of things have come together at once and whether that'll lead people to start making those connections between all of those, all of those different systems. Yes, and I think. This is a, a very challenging time, whether the Queen was here or not, but for her to die in the midst of this, yeah. as you said, it, it, it it's an, a bunch of overlapping crises happening at once. 
And I mean, I've been thinking too about uh, the coronation that will happen next summer, how much money will be poured into that, you know, as cost of living skyrockets, everything that's happened with the war in Ukraine. I mean, there's, I think if, if anything will make people critical uh, and asking questions of the monarchy, it will be crisis and financial strife and all of the difficulties that people are suffering on a regular basis. And then looking to the monarchy for, if not solutions, but at least some sense of empathy. Are they acting in a way, at least superficially, that makes them look like they understand you know, what people are going through? And I haven't seen any evidence of that at all. Um, the one thing that I I've, I've had a number of people that I know who are, who are let's say, in their 60s or 70s um, who are British, and they've said to me that one of the reasons why people look, look to the royal family for stability and continuity, but also kind of think about them fondly, is to do with World War II yes. and the fact that, you know, George VI stayed um, in Buckingham Palace when London was being bombed, and the sense that they were there during... A, a moment of extreme peril um, to stand for the people, to represent solidarity, uh, you know, all that. And I don't think there's been a similar moment since then. And it's almost, you know, not quite a century later, but, you know, that time um, has come and gone. And I haven't seen any evidence that the royal family commands that level of respect from the people. No, I feel like there was an attempt to do that during the pandemic. So the Queen kind of gave that address to the nation very early on that was actually uh, using a lot of the same language, actually, that you would have heard kind of during, you know, around the time of the war. So around, you know, we'll see each other again, we'll come together again, we're all in this together, that kind of language. Mm, right. Um, it, I don't, and they, they also showed, um, I think they had a picture of it and some quotes, and it was showed in Piccadilly Circus on the big screen. So I think that was kind of, that felt like, one of the most kind of concerted attempts to kind of orientate national identity around the monarch at a particular period of crisis, probably since the war. Uh, but it certainly didn't have the same sway that I think that was. It won't, you know, we won't be talking about that in 50 years in terms of bringing the people together, I don't think. But I guess I'm just <laughs> thinking that kind of flashpoint of an, of an attempt to kind of possibly draw on some of that language again. Yes, and I was going to say that's an excellent point too because I remember after that, uh, with everything that happened with Boris Johnson, they were there was a juxtaposition of the Queen during the pandemic and the loss of Prince Philip and everything that she was going through and having to mourn in isolation versus Boris Johnson having parties and disregarding the people and disregarding the rules and and that is something that I have seen and I'm mainly talking about like Twitter too people coming back to as a defense of the monarchy you know that look at these two different one is a you know one is an elected representative of the people the other is you know a hereditary position and she was the one who was acting dignified she was the one who was you know trying to support the people and and act in concert with them and in their best interests and i thought that was an interesting argument that was being you know put forward as the way of essentially saying you know we've got this dignified royal family and there were also people who would point out that you know look at the american system it gave rise to trump or, um, you know, look at these other systems, they're not any better, as though those are the only two possibilities. Yes, totally. And I think it's like Queen of... Elizabeth or Trump. Yeah, exactly. Else. <laughs> <One> yeah. <or> the other. <laughs> and I think there's something really, and this, again, I'm talking about particularly UK context, but there is no education and no discussion around what a republic would actually look like. 
So when you talk about this, you know, it immediately gets dismissed as, oh, well, we don't want, you know, President Tony Blair, or we don't want a version of Trump, exactly. Whereas actually, what Republicanism could look like is very different, right? There's, lot, there's lots of different versions of what that might look like. The I- Irish version is probably the closest to us, but there's lots of other different ones. So kind of how those flashpoints are used to dismiss alternative conversations, I think is quite interesting. And that there's that particular image, isn't there, of the Queen at Prince Philip's funeral when she's sat on her own in the pews. I think that's what you're referring to. And how yes. powerful that one image is in immediately kind of dismissing all of those conversations around getting rid of, you know, getting rid of the monarchy. And again, I think that's why it's interesting that, you know, she's now passed away and we have Charles and he doesn't hold that same sway. So I think, you know, it's still very early days, obviously. It's only been, it's only been a couple of months, but how all of those kind of feelings that were attached to that, those images of the Queen, you know, they've now kind of moved on and whether that will start to change the discourse um, in subtle ways, I think, at first. It's overlapping with the release of the next season of The Crown, which has been (laughs) heavily promoted here. And I am actually teaching a class right now on the British monarchy and film. It's a history of the British monarchy through film. It's it's a really fun class. I love teaching it. And I've been taught. Um, most of my students enrolled in the class because of the crown and then I forced them to watch a bunch of older films about you know Henry VIII and Elizabeth and Victoria but now we're actually on the Windsors and they're really excited about it because they're they're fascinated by the royal family but also by the number of different dramas that the royal family the modern Windsors have been embroiled in and that they're on full display in a fictionalized version in the crown. I mean, it's pretty interesting to have that happen at the same time as the death of the queen and Charles becoming king. Yeah, and I think the crown, I mean, I have some issues with the crown in terms of how it romanticizes different stories, but I think it, it, it's really quite critical in some places, particularly around Charles. There's been some really interesting kind of journalist pieces around how, you know, this kind of reinvigoration of Diana as this cultural figure has made all this, these new kind of younger audiences who probably weren't even alive when Diana died, how they've made them, them aware of that kind of that, that moment of, well, you know, what she went through in the 90s, essentially, and how she was mm-hmm. treated um, and how that, that then changes young people's conversations around the monarchy. I get a lot of hope from talking to my students. I'm actually doing this on Friday and I can't wait. Um, talking to my students around around monarchy and kind of their feelings of it because they, they talk about it, I think, in such a different way than like my parents would, for example. I think there's such a different feeling around that institution. And I think that's to do with lots of things. I think that's to do with politics. That's to do with feelings around national identity. I think it's to do with mm-hmm. nostalgia, like you said. But there's just something so interesting kind of having that and media as well, I think. I think the crown and things are, are, are kind of central to that as well in terms of building knowledge and of course we know some of it's not true but building that kind of knowledge around the monarchy I think is really important and generating interest in it too Mm. most of my students that are in this class were not alive when Princess Diana died or were very young but many of them are fascinated by her and her story Uh, not by Charles no one is fascinated by Charles. They had to write a paper about, you know, pick a member of the royal family and how they've been represented in different, they had to um, either pick two shows or two films and compare them. I had not one student pick Charles because people just don't find him interesting. They don't find him fascinating. Uh, They're just, they don't really care about his story, which in and of itself uh, is, is really interesting. But I do think, I think the question of, I mean, kind of going back to colonialism and slavery, 
and even the sort of atrocities committed in the queen's name during her lifetime i i think the question now is not it's no longer you know what did the queen know or not know or do or not do about some of these things that happen either in the distant past or during her lifetime now that we've that she is gone and we have charles um, on the throne. The question is, what what will he do now that he's finally in the role that he's been waiting for his entire life? And he has such a limited amount of time to make his mark on the institution. And we know he cared passionately about climate change, and he's already said he's going to take a step back from that. But I've been asked uh, before, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, why why won't he take a step forward and and move beyond these statements of regret? Um, when considering what's happened in the past with the royal family, their involvement in the slave trade, the amount of money they made off of that. And I think that it's partly for, for Charles, he'll just be trying to, you know, maintain his grip at the moment. And, uh, you know, essentially, he's just trying to swim in deep waters at the moment. There's too many things going on. And, you know, no one, I think, especially in the UK, really is putting this as like their number one issue you know, the question of apologizing for slavery or reparations or anything like that. But I think in the long run, they, they will have to address this. Um, and it'll keep coming up as countries leave. Um, Jamaica, Antigua, other places that have announced that they're already considering taking the next step and severing ties with the crown. And as much as Charles pretends that he doesn't care, that this is all fine, it reignites these conversations. Um, and especially in many of the newspapers in like, so I follow the newspapers in Jamaica and they're constantly talking about why have we not seen more of an apology from the royal family? And they'll get into some of the specifics. They'll talk about Elizabeth I sponsoring, you know, Sir Hawkins voyages in the 1560s. They'll talk about the Royal African Company, um, the Asiento, you know, they'll go into some of the details um, and no one ever responds to these these sort of Jamaican uh, newspaper articles because they know they're really talking to themselves. They're talking to the Caribbean community. The royal family is not listening and they're not willing to engage in that conversation. How do you think we can get people to care about this? Because I think, and obviously there's a bigger conversation in terms of, you know, there's been these really great reports around like the National Trust and, and various issues around these colonial histories and the Daily Mail and all of those have really gone for all of those, <laughs> all of those scholars and, and tried to close down those conversations. But I think there's also something in, you know, how can we kind of frame this in a way that gets people to sit up and take notice? To me, one thing I think is I always try and be quite mindful of my wording. So to me, the monarchy is the institution and the royal family is the individuals. And I think there's kind of so much feeling attached to people like William, people like Kate, um, that's kind of addressing it at an individual level. And of course, it's not an individual's problem, right? It's, an, it's a structural problem. But addressing it in terms of those individuals it, it isn't really helpful, I think, sometimes in terms of these broader conversations. And actually thinking about it in terms of the monarchy as an institution um, and comparing it. So one thing I kind of do in my book is compare it to other institutions. You know, we're, we're all so happy to criticise Amazon. Um, so why not kind of think about monarchy within the, in that same bracket? I know they're very different, but they're similar in some ways. Um, so how thinking about the kind of language that we use, I think, to describe some of the things I think is really important in order to kind of to get, to get people to almost like reframe it in their heads. Like it's not an individualist issue. It's a structural issue. 
um, like all of these things are. And I think that's part of the problem with the backlash to all of these reports about the National Trust because people take it, seem to take it so personally when it's not meant as that. It's around kind of, the, you know, these structural histories. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you. And I think when we focus more on the institution itself and we depersonalize the institution, then then we can be a bit more critical. And I think people are more willing to step back and and detach themselves emotionally when you when you, you reframe the conversation around what does this institution owe to its subjects or to its former subjects. You know, what what, should it be held accountable? How will this institution that's a thousand years old survive the 21st century and beyond if it continues to deny what, you know, previous positions, previous people in the positions of power did or did not do? Because I think what people didn't do is, is just as significant. Queen Elizabeth, she could have addressed some of these issues she chose not to during her lifetime. And I think very strategically, I mean, we know that she was willing to apologize in New Zealand for some of the colonial atrocities that occurred towards the Maori people and and an unprecedented apology. But the difference was that the New Zealand government made that possible and she essentially signed it, but didn't have to pay anything. It was the New Zealand government took control of that at kind of at the local level. And I think the only way we will see a change is if similar things occur, where locally people and governments are willing to engage in these conversations and the crown essentially has to get involved because they're still head of state. As ties are severed between the monarchy and the Commonwealth realms, particularly the former slave colonies, or or even places like Canada or Australia, where there were atrocities committed against indigenous populations, there is less of a motivation for whoever is the head of the institution to acknowledge and apologize for those kinds of crimes once they're no longer the head and once they don't have to be the representative to sign off on any uh, legislation that might be passed that at least tries to engage in some kind of justice or reparations for past atrocities. Yeah, I mean, Brooke, I could speak to you about this all day, but I think um, it's time for us to wrap up. So thank you so much. That was really fascinating. Thank you for having me. Yes, I agree. I could speak to you all day too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Global Power of the British Monarchy. Guest executively produced by Laura Clancy. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.